BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. A Bay Area-based nonprofit that has worked for over two decades to rid Afghanistan of landmines is pleading for help to evacuate their 360 workers. Roots of Peace supports Afghan farmers and their families by removing mines so that land can be used for sustainable agriculture. CEO and founder Heidi Kuhn is asking President Biden to keep the Kabul airport open until her workers can be evacuated. For those who have put their life at risk, who have put their, their, their souls on the front line for peace, let's get them out of Afghanistan. Let's get them to a safety plot of land, a refugee area. Kuhn says she fears for her Afghan staff members' lives, especially because they're working for an American NGO led by a woman. Members of the Afghan diaspora throughout California are anxiously watching developments in Afghanistan. Many are seeking help for their loved ones. Rona Popal is the executive director of the Afghan coalition based in Fremont. She's been fielding those calls in her community, and she joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Why don't we begin by getting your reaction to President Biden's remarks yesterday? You were watching, as were so many of us, as he delivered those remarks in real time. What did you think of what he said? As much as we respect for President Biden, uh, but we are got very much disappointed by his decision, by his, um, you know, the decision he made, the time he chose, and also... Um, the coordination. There was no coordination between the U.S. Uh, uh, Army and Afghanistan Army. So there was a lot of things went wrong. I know he's supporting the Afghan people. I know he wanted to, um, you know, send the humanitarian aid. But I think uh, it was really he made a big mistake. And, as, and we would like to ask him to change, if it's possible, to change his strategy for Afghanistan now. And as we watch the situation in Afghanistan deteriorate, what are you hearing from members of the Afghan community where you are in Fremont and elsewhere in the state? Everywhere in our community, we get a lot of calls uh, from a lot of families. They're very much uh, concerned about their families inside Afghanistan, especially about the women, especially about the translators who work with the American army. They're very much concerned and they would like to bring them out as soon as possible. But unfortunately, you saw that there's no way out. The embassy is closed and uh, they can't do anything right now. I'm working with two women to take them out from Afghanistan, but we can't. Um, I refer them to several places so they can call, so they can uh, 
you know, help them. And they said, right now we can't do anything. Wait, they are shocked, unfortunately. And they never believe. And we thought the decision will be slowly. It will happen. You know, uh, peace with Taliban. Uh, the Taliban will giving uh, maybe few position in the uh, government. Not to they come and take over. And as we face that future of what looks to be like Taliban rule for the foreseeable future, what concerns do you have about women and the situation that they're in in Afghanistan? Are there any signs that things might um, be different this time compared to last time they ruled the country? I, I hope so. I hope so. Taliban send uh, uh, several uh, you know, notices to the uh, Afghan people that they are here to help, they're here to support, they're here to get the security, they're here to stop the war. I uh, hope so. You know, these are the Taliban. Uh, one month ago, they killed every day, they killed so many people in order to get in power. And now, you know, it's hard. It's hard to believe what they said. We are very nervous. We are very, very, uh, don't know what to do, how to help our Afghan people in Afghanistan and how to help some of our family members. We really don't know what to do. It sounds like a really helpless feeling. Well, Rona, thank you so much for taking some time this morning with us, and we look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you so much for talking to me. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. In Sacramento, State Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon says everyone who works in the Assembly has two weeks until September 1st to get vaccinated against COVID-19 or risk losing their jobs. Rendon said yesterday the requirement will provide additional protection for anyone entering the state capitol. The vaccination rate for lawmakers and Assembly staff is at around 80 percent right now. Legislative employees already have to submit proof of vaccination to Capitol Health staff or be tested regularly. Last month, at least nine employees in the state assembly tested positive for COVID-19, which prompted a return to mask wearing at the Capitol. The utility PG&E told a federal judge Monday it has no knowledge of a drone flight that interfered with firefighters last month on the first day of the Dixie fire. KQED's Dan Brecky has that story. The FBI, FAA, and local prosecutors are all investigating who was flying a drone that got in the way of firefighting aircraft during the first hours of the Dixie Fire. The blaze started July 13th when a tree fell across PG&E power lines adjacent to one of the company's hydropower dams on the Feather River. Those circumstances prompted U.S. District Judge William Alsup, who was overseeing PG&E's probation for a pipeline safety conviction, to order the company to tell 
him what it knows about the drone flight. In its reply, the company says it knows nothing about the drone, who was flying it, or what the flight's purpose was. Now more than a month old, the Dixie Fire has burned nearly 900 square miles and continues to pose serious threats to communities in Placer and Lassen counties. For the California Report, I'm Dan Brecky. Red flag conditions are pushing the massive Dixie Fire towards two communities in the North State. In Lassen County, residents of the small town of Janesville have been ordered to evacuate as the fire advances towards the community west of Highway 395. Here's Mark Brunton, a battalion chief at CAL FIRE. Got some spots established in there. We've surged resources. Uh, we already had a plan in place and, and stood up for structured defense of Janesville. So that's already been in play for a number of days pre-planned, uh, and uh, when expecting this kind of conditions, we've had resources there. The fire also spread quickly northeast, moving closer to the town of Susanville near the state's border with Nevada. Police and fire officials there have advised residents to be alert and be ready to leave their homes immediately if the fire continues to advance in their direction. A red flag warning remains in effect until 10 o'clock tonight. Because of windy conditions, PG&E is warning that it might have to turn the power off to around 48,000 customers across Northern California starting tonight. That's in an effort to prevent its equipment from igniting a wildfire. Although investigations continue, the utility says a tree that fell into one of its power lines may have helped ignite the Dixie Fire. The fire has destroyed more than 600 homes so far. 28,000 people remain evacuated this morning. Now to my interview with the author of a new book on 2018's campfire. The book is called Paradise, and it pieces together what happened in the fire and follows its devastating aftermath through the eyes of fire survivors. Following the fire, the book's author reporter Lizzie Johnson kept documenting the town and its people long after many news outlets had left. Lizzie joined me to talk about the book and some of the survivors she follows through their recoveries. Paradise, for me, like a lot of other people, I think was just utterly devastating in terms of seeing all that could be lost in a wildfire. And when I was reporting there after the fire, I was just struck by how warm and heartfelt the people were and what this town had been and just the sense of it being gone in near totality. And so... I felt really compelled to understand what had been there before the fire, why people had loved this place so much and what had led to the big fire, right? I felt like that was the way of doing justice to these people, the people of Paradise, Megalia, Concow, and Butte County overall. Yeah, so long after so many other outlets had left, you were still there, and, and I think we all remember that very well. You know, when I was covering the immediate aftermath of the fire, a couple days after it had come through Paradise, I met this mother and daughter, this elderly uh, mom who was in her 90s at that point, and she said, you know, there was this lady who gave had just given birth to a child at the hospital when the fire was, you know, basically had torn through. And I... I remember just being very surprised by that and sort of moving on. I drive back to the Bay Area. And a couple days later, you had a story in the San Francisco Chronicle about the baby and its mom, whose name is Rochelle Sanders. Tell us about Rochelle. Yeah, so Rochelle, her family had lived in paradise for a long time. Her grandparents owned a home there, and 
you know, she had grown up in Fresno, but it had spent winter holidays and some summers in paradise and eventually moved back as an adult. And she had just remarried. She and her husband, Chris, got pregnant and had this baby named Lincoln. And, you know, they held him in their arms and realized that he was this fresh start for them, their entire world. And within 12 hours, the campfire overtook the town of paradise. Rochelle and Chris got separated. Rochelle was shoved into a stranger's car. She didn't know who the guy was and was confronted with this really hard decision of, you know, if the fire overtook the car, what, what should she do? Should she try and run with the baby, knowing that she couldn't really move that well, given she just had a C-section? Or should she give the baby to the stranger and leave it from there, right? Her story is so indicative of so many other people's stories that morning, just how harrowing it was to have to make really hard decisions on an, a morning that should have been normal. And you were with Rochelle when she first went back to her property. Several weeks had passed uh, since her home had burned. What was that like? And and talk about, you know, how she was able to, or at least try to process what she was seeing. I mean, it was really hard. I think any time you see someone coming back to their home or what should be their home for the first time, there's a lot of emotion there. And I'd been there for a lot of those moments before with other people, but with Rochelle, it really shook me up a lot more, I think, because the baby was there too, right? Mm -hmm. And just looking at her infant son and being like, oh, that was supposed to be his home. That was supposed to be his life. And seeing that their future was going to be so totally different than when they had planned. And Rochelle too, she's an incredibly strong, incredibly brave woman and you know, just seeing her facade sort of break down when she saw her children's bikes crumpled in the garage, you know, it's a very hard thing for someone to go through to lose their home and their life. And where is Rochelle now? So Rochelle is living in Chico. Baby Lincoln is now almost three years old. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, he's super cute, has this big thatch of blonde hair and blue eyes and You know, she's still trying to hold it together. Her husband, Chris, unfortunately passed away from cancer not long after the fire. It was all very unexpected. So she's been dealing with a lot. And again, just as brave as ever. I don't, I truly don't know how she does it, but she's holding it together somehow. Yeah. Well, we wish her the best and we wish so many of the people that you've profiled in this book the very best. Lizzie Johnson is the author of the new book, Paradise. She is now a reporter with the Washington Post. Lizzie, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for spending some time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lily. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, August 17th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.